and we see these guys bobbing around and their boat had sunk. They were gonna get frostbite. So we all rallied to like pull them ashore. One of the guys, he was like holding on to a cooler full of beer. He didn't want to let go of the cooler really too tricky to let go because you're not gonna survive. We actually ended up getting a Coast Guard reward for that. My name is Katrina Nachi. When she's not saving lives on the water, Katrina makes a name for herself in the cross-border accounting advisory space. Helping European companies go public in the U.S., helping U.S. companies acquire European companies and all of the accounting nuances that go along with that. Understanding these nuances comes from real-world experience, having worked with businesses across the globe. I spent three years in Boston, and I was in Germany for two or three years, and I moved to Dubai, and now I've been back in Germany. Join us as we learn about the jet-setting life of Katrina Nachi. It's like almost knowing what you don't know when it comes to educating other CFOs, what's really possible with the resources that you have. My name is Danielle Keevan. Let's uncover the hidden stories of finance professionals as they navigate money, investment, and growth. Let's look into the person behind the CFO title. Let's go beyond the budget. Before we get into the episode, if you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star review of the podcast wherever you listen. It helps out the whole Paddle Studios team tremendously and lets us continue to uncover the hidden stories of CFOs. Katrina's current life abroad doesn't exactly match the childhood she experienced. While trips to Europe were moments she cherished deeply, listen on to hear about her grounded upbringing and how that shaped her values today. I grew up in Rhode Island, which is like an hour from Boston. It's the smallest state in the U.S., but it's got a long coastline. It's a very beautiful place. I mean, I had like a tiny twin bed of it. You see all these like movies and stuff of kids growing up and they have these big queen and king beds. And I'm like, who are these people? I mean, I enjoyed it on his face for a desk. I was kind of nerdy. So I was always sitting in there doing my homework. I can't specifically remember posters. I remember that it was purple. I mean, posters back in the day probably would have been like Hanson and and so Yeah, that's all I can really remember. I mean, I, I spent the first 18 years of my life there. So I had a very steady kind of childhood home. Actually, funny enough my mom is in the process of moving back into that house which I haven't seen in like over 10 years so it's going to be a really weird thing for me to go back into. <laughs> I mean I think there's a lot of value in having a stable childhood where your parents are like invested in your education and you really have like a good relationship and can talk openly about that stuff. What's kind of been interesting for me is I've kind of like taken that and flipped it a little bit. I mean nothing to do with like being close to my parents but more just like having one place where I was for the first 18 years of my life because after graduating college, I spent three years in Boston and then I moved to Germany and I was in Germany for two or three years and I moved to Dubai for two years and now I've been back in Germany for almost five years. So like this is now the longest I've lived consistently in one place, but it's just kind of interesting to contrast it with my childhood, which was just all in one place. And now I'm kind of like bopping around and I feel very settled down now, but it was just interesting that I felt the need to like get out and explore. And luckily having my parents close and like traveling internationally when I was younger, I think allowed me kind of the comfort and security and confidence in myself to be able to do that. Katrina's travels abroad weren't the only kinds of journeys she would take. Next, we hear about her life growing up on the water, including one life-saving experience that resulted in Katrina and her family being awarded by the U.S. Coast Guard. 
My dad is an all-weather sailor. He will be the first one out during the season and the last one in. We went to pick up one of the new boats that we had bought down in Connecticut. And I remember sitting on the mooring of the boat, which is not a dock, but like when there's like a little buoy in the water that you grab. And all of a sudden, I guess there was like a tornado on land or something. And the boat started like spinning around in circles. So it's kind of crazy. And another time we were out very early in the season, it was maybe March or April. And so there weren't a lot of other boats on the bay and we're coming back to shore and we see these guys bobbing around and their boat had sunk. They went out fishing or something and there were three older guys. And I mean, they were going to get frostbite in minutes or hours. I mean, it was very cold. So we all kind of like rallied and had different tasks to like keep an eye on them and like pull them ashore, get them warm again. One of the guys, he was like holding on to a cooler full of beer. He didn't want to let go of the cooler really too. You need to let go because you're not going to survive. So then we called like the Coast Guard and the ambulance and stuff and they came when we docked, they came and get them. So we actually ended up getting a Coast Guard reward for that. But uh, it was a pretty hairy situation. Next, we'll hear about where the itch for Katrina to immerse herself in new cultures came from. As she tells it, family vacations weren't as easy to plan back in the day. My mom is definitely more on the adventurous side. She was the one that was always planning all of these trips. So when I was in sixth grade, we did two weeks in Italy and then eighth grade, two weeks in France and then 11th grade or 10th grade two weeks in Spain. So we had a decent amount of time in each place and got to see different cultures. And I mean, back in the day, this was like 2000 or 1998, whatever, we did our first international trip. So I mean, she wasn't going on Airbnb uh, like herself out. I mean, she was faxing and calling places. It was a very different level of effort that went into planning those trips. But I just really enjoyed like seeing different cultures, kind of learning bits and pieces of the language we would spend time, you know, around the dinner table for the month leading up to the trip, kind of like learning phrases together as a family. So it was just really interesting. And I kind of always wanted to go back and explore that by myself. I mean, even when I was there with my family, I was trying to like figure out how to navigate the different like local subways and stuff. So it was just really enjoyable. With her thrilling familial adventures in the rearview mirror, it was time for Katrina to focus on her education. It took a lot of grit to head in the direction Katrina desired. And, as you'll hear next, she started her education in a field you might not expect. Yeah, so I was originally in a technical institute up in upstate New York for biochemistry and biophysics. It was just like, like a lot harder than I was expecting it to be. I really enjoyed it, but just some of the concepts, it was a little too abstract for me at some points. And so I wanted to do something that was like a little bit more, I don't know, grounded in reality, I guess. Uh, I don't know. That's a very good way to put it. But I realized that what I enjoyed was more like the math and the logic behind the science and wanted to kind of pivot in a different direction. So I decided to transfer back home to the University of Rhode Island. And I was initially double majoring in applied math and finance. But I took an accounting class and had to do some case study around PwC. And I was like, oh, I want to work there. But it was much easier to get into the big four as an accounting major. So I actually switched from finance to accounting almost entirely for that purpose because I could see a very concrete path forward as an accounting major. Uh, so that's what 
kind of ultimately led me there. I think just starting to see that end goal of like, this is what I want to be after college, like the ambitions that I was starting to develop to like move into a big city and go into the big four, I could see it happening. And that really made me want to fight for it. It was difficult because as a transfer student to URI, I didn't automatically qualify for scholarships initially, which looking back on it was very difficult because if I had applied as a high school senior, I would have gotten a full ride because I was an in-state person and had decent enough grades. So I was able to like get into the honors program and then get some scholarships as a result, but it never made up the full thing. So I was still working the job that I had since high school, which was at a yacht club actually, but I moved into the office there. So I was starting to get accounting experience even at the yacht club. And then I also was the manager for a beach club in Rhode Island, which was the most fun job. I just kind of sat on the beach and managed the lifeguards and talked to the members. And then I was also the business manager for the school newspaper, which was fun and also kind of more hands-on. You know, get to learn how to use QuickBooks and all that fun stuff. All of this vocational experience would pay off for Katrina, and she would next take the CPA exam. She finished school and then started her career at PWC. She got an average score of 96 on all four parts of the CPA exam which is pretty impressive. But as you'll hear next, she was just a touch shy from a lucrative reward. I think I went about it the right way and I always advocate people to do this. So I graduated in May and I didn't start working until September, which is pretty typical in the accounting world. You'll get a job offer way ahead of time. I got it like the October before. So I knew I had like three months where I wasn't doing anything. So I'm like, I'm just going to put my head down and study and get them out of the way. So I took like, and they have different windows, which I can't even remember now. Like one month was blacked out and then you had like July and August, the testing was open. And so I would take two each month and I was literally just studying 10 hours a day, seven days a week. I had actually moved up to Boston. I was like subletting a place because the idea was I was going to go into Boston College and they have CPA prep class every day. But I just got the agenda for the class and I did like the self-study. So I didn't bother to like commute back and forth and I was just doing it on my own. So it was a kind of lovely time. I mean, I remember going out a couple of nights of going to some Red Sox games during the process, but it was really just like heads down studying. And in retrospect, like I probably overstudied because you really only need a 75 and after that, it doesn't really matter. But I did find out at some point after that, because if you get, I want to say like the top 10 scores or something in that year, you get this special award. And if you're with like a big four, they give you like $20,000 or something. And I found out that I was one point away from that that year. So if I had studied just like a little bit more, maybe I would have gotten. But otherwise, I mean, then starting at PWC and watching all of my peers have to study while they're working, it took them like a good sometimes two years to pass all of the sections. It was just really nice to kind of get that out the door. So I remember I was going through a couple of different routes with other companies, but then as soon as I got the PWC offer, I was just like, this is it. This is what I'm going with. And I was very happy about it. I think I did at some point maybe like speak to having kind of that interest still in biochemistry, biophysics, and like wanting to explore working maybe with like biotechs. And I have since worked with a couple of them. But otherwise, I don't really remember too much about my interviews. One interesting thing I do remember is that you 
normally will get interviewed by a partner who went to the same university as you. That's like part of their recruitment process when they reach out on campus. His name is is Rich. And funny enough, so he was honestly a partner in Boston in a different group that I didn't even end up joining. So we didn't work together there. But uh, I was sitting in PwC Frankfurt one day and I heard them talking about somebody that they were going to bring over as a partner on a common in Frankfurt and it fit him to a T. So I went up to the other partner and I was like, who are you thinking of? And it ended up being Rich. So he came out to Frankfurt for a couple of years and I worked with him. You know, we went to the same school. It was just a crazy kind of 360 experience. With valuable experience now under her belt with PwC, it was time for Katrina to step abroad. As luck would have it, she wouldn't be away from PwC for long. You already heard she was at PwC in Frankfurt, but you may not know of the interesting culture shock she experienced, which she'll talk about next. Before I left PwC in Boston, when I sent kind of my goodbye email, one of the quality review partners that I had worked with, who I didn't even think he knew my name at the time, you know, I was like a third year associate. He said, hey, I know a partner in in Frankfurt. So if you ever want to reach out, here's his information. And so I ended up reaching out to him and he was heading up the capital markets and accounting advisory group. And that's how I ended up in that space, which turned out to be just a perfect fit for me and kind of where I've ended up in my career. It did definitely feel like coming home. I mean, there's something about the way that PwC recruits and I guess all of the big four kind of have their own flavors, but it always feels like no matter where in the world you go, it's just family and you somehow get along really well with them. I mean, maybe I'm just easy to get along with other people, but I felt the same thing even when I went to Dubai, that it was just like very easy to immediately connect with people. I will say that the one difficult thing about PwC in Germany was just like adapting to the different culture. So I remember showing up on the first day and, you know, you start with a huge group of people. So there were, there were like a hundred or something kind of new joiners, or even though I wasn't really a new joiner, they put me in that anyway. The Germans like very muted colors. They wear, you know, black suits, blue suits. That's like just about it. They don't really wear any jewelry. It's like very understated. And so I walked into the auditorium on the first day and it's just like a sea of black and blue suits. Well, I decided that I'm going to show up. I had a really nice dress and it happened to be PwC colored, which I don't know if you can picture them on the top of your head, but it's one of the colors, dark pink. I showed up in a dark pink dress and I just like stood out like a sore thumb, like everybody could tell I was not German. It was definitely tough. Like I remember being pretty homesick when I first moved over, but it just felt to me like so strongly something that I had to do. And, you know, I remember even being upset when I was going to the airport to leave. Like my dad, you know, drove me there and my mom actually flew over with me and we traveled around for like three months around Germany before I started working. But I always kind of took the view that you know, I'll try it out for a year, see if I like it. It's not, I can always move back. So I always knew that I had an out and, you know, 10 years later, still over here. So it's obviously worked out. And there have been periods, I would say almost every two or three years, a little bit of like an existential crisis comes along. Like, do I want to stay living over here? I enjoy the traveling aspect and just a lot around the culture, but obviously miss my family. Should I move back to the U.S.? But now that I work for myself and can go back and forth a lot easier for work and like have projects in both places, I feel like I finally had that a good balance that hopefully I can still see my family a lot, but kind of be able to do my own thing. I would say like my mom is definitely, like I mentioned before, she's more adventurous, willing to travel. She's been over here a couple of times since I moved. And my dad and my stepmom are a little more homebodies. So they just came out here for the first time last October and and I show them around. 
I mean, I think that they, they get what I'm doing out here. And especially now that I have this like specialized niche and I've really kind of made it my career essentially to be able to go back and forth, it makes more and more sense to them what I'm doing. Katrina soon found a niche for herself in cross-border transactional accounting. It's an interesting niche that makes sense with the background you've heard so far. As you'll hear next, there was a point where she could have gone down the CFO path. Pay close attention to why she chose a different route. When I was working back for PwC in Frankfurt, I mentioned I was in the capital markets and accounting advisory team. So I was doing very similar work, but we actually had a specialist team that sat within that, that was called the US topic team. And it, there were a lot of other Americans, mostly on the common for a couple of years from their home office that were helping to take European companies public in the US or do IFRS to US gap conversion. So I kind of started to get that experience across border. And the 10 years that I've been over here, I've made a very conscious effort you know, not knowing if I wanted to go back to the U.S. at some point to always kind of have my hand on the pulse of what's going on in the SEC, U.S. accounting reporting space. And I always just thought it would be really interesting to, I mean, I never really considered myself like an entrepreneur, but I always wanted to, in the future, I thought this was going to be you know, when I was like 50 years old, think about branching out on my own and like having clients on both continents so that I can keep that cross, cross border niche and continue to dive deeper and deeper into it. But I ended up, so back in 2019, I left PwC in Frankfurt and I went into private equity. I was actually working for a Toronto-based real estate asset management firm that had just started to buy up assets in Germany. And so they brought me in as the first finance hire to build up the European accounting reporting function from scratch. And that was really an awesome experience. I mean, private equity is definitely its own beast in a lot of ways, but I really enjoyed it. And we went into a lot of other countries um, while I was there. So I got to work on a lot of different acquisitions. I mean, the goal of that was partially, oh, I'm working now for a North American company, so I can go back and forth a lot more. All of my uh, bosses were still in Toronto. But then, of course, COVID happened, and so that didn't really play out. And I started to realize the more time I worked in private equity, you know, got promoted to director, the next logical step would have been CFO. But I realized that that wasn't what I wanted. I mean, CFO sounds like a nice shiny title, but there's a lot that goes along with it around like strategy and FP&A that just really wasn't my thing. And I kind of miss the accounting advisory world. So started to think about, again, pivoting back to that. I actually had interviewed with a couple of smaller accounting firms or like advisory firms in the US. But when I told them, hey, how can we make this work to be able to go back and forth between Europe and the US? You know, even post-COVID, when people work remotely and a lot of that aspect is easier from like a legal entity perspective, if they don't have a legal entity here that can hire me, it doesn't really work. And I guess kind of what really was the cherry on top or the switch that flipped was I was also in the position to get permanent residency here in Germany. So I was able to get that last year. What allowed me to not have to have a German employment contract with a German entity and I could go out on my own and register as a freelancer and then was able to have a client kind of in my pocket because they wanted to hire me and brought me in as a contractor instead. So that was kind of the route that I took initially to bring in clients. Katrina has gained an important understanding of different cultures that allows her to communicate a specific value to her clients that only someone in her position can understand. Listen to her next discuss how she communicates the value of cross-border communication. 
Even just the way that I think about like writing emails or talking on calls, I think I almost subconsciously now cater the way that I speak and explain things to if I'm talking to a non-native English speaker. Like when I go home and see my family, they're always like, why do you talk so weird? You have a strange accent. I think I just like accentuate things differently to kind of get my point across. I know it's not really business specific, but it's really just understanding how to work with different cultures in terms of the ways that they want to be respected, whether you can show up to a meeting and shake people's hands or not. What are their typical working hours? Are they going to work on the weekends? Are they going to expect you to work on the weekends? How do they take vacation? Like all these these little like nuances, you know, you can't really do a lot of business in Europe and especially certain countries like Spain and Italy in August because the whole country shuts down. A lot of doing things in Germany is still around paperwork and mailing things back and forth. There's not a lot of electronics, especially when it comes to things around government bureaucracy. So it's just kind of picking up on those little nuances and and then kind of being open to different ways of working. I think that, again, remote work has probably helped that quite a bit because you don't always have to be sitting face to face with somebody and can be a little bit more thoughtful and like take things back before responding. And then, of course, you know, things like people and translations also come in handy. Yeah, it's just it's almost not so much the specific countries that I've worked in, but just that I, I have that ability to adapt and kind of be a little bit like a chameleon. And when it comes to like technical accounting stuff, I mean, you could ask me to do something regarding, I don't know, Norwegian Gap or Swedish Gap. And yeah, maybe I haven't been exposed to it before, but because I'm confident enough in my research abilities, having had to research and understand different securities, regulations, the different accounting policies, like I could go in and say like, yeah, I can pick that up. It's not that difficult. Like once you learn how to learn about different countries and how they work from a business perspective, it's just a natural skill to develop. I guess there are two different aspects because the way that a European CFO would think about that is very different than a US CFO. So for a European CFO, I think maybe it's an unfair advantage, but I have an American accent. That automatically gives me more credibility that I know what I'm talking about when it comes to US topics. But I actually just last week was running a uh, workshop for UK CFOs that are looking to do a US IPO. And just the fact that I can vary off the cuff about different topics around like Sarbanes-Oxley and kind of, it's a very delicate balance of not overwhelming them with information about the U.S. because I can't quote different SEC rules and expect them to know what I'm talking about, but kind of like spoon feed it to them a little bit in a way that they're like, wow, there's a lot going on here and there's a lot of nuances around going to the U.S. So we need her to help us kind of translate that path forward. And then on the flip side with U.S. CFOs, it's interesting because the way that the statutory environment exists in the U.S. is different to Europe. I mean, in the U.S., when you're an entity, maybe you don't have to do full-fledged U.S. gap, but you just have to file with the IRS. And so I wouldn't really call it like a statutory gap. It's more of just like filling out an IFRS form, like U.S. tax gap, whatever you want to call it. But U.S. CFOs don't understand that when you acquire an entity in Europe, you could take that entity, bring it into your consolidation, do a gap conversion to U.S. gap. think you're all fine and dandy to like having your U.S. team take it over, but not understand the specific legalities and some of the nuances around having still that legal entity exists in Europe. So, you know, I know Germany specifically 
they need to you need to still keep your books physically in Germany, like on German servers in the German language. I mean, there's ways to get around that. You still have to report under German GAP to the tax authorities. There's just like a lot of different things that still have to happen in country. You can't just like pick up a trial balance, move it into the US and like push your German accounting team off a cliff. Basically, like you still you need to respect basically what I'm getting at is you need to like respect the local laws and again, the way of doing business because you're probably still going to have people in country and how do they work as compared to how you work? When is their team taking vacation? Just little like HR issues like that. You know, a three month notice period in the US is absolutely mind blowing, but that's the way that things work out here. I think that it's much easier to have those types of conversations with other accounting advisory firms. And that's why I've kind of been going through them at first to get a lot of work because it's harder to it's like almost knowing what you don't know when it comes to educating other CFOs. They just don't appreciate that cross-border space as much. While you may typically associate it with travel, a first-class experience is something Katrina gives to her clients when it comes to cross-border accounting and reporting. Listen to her next discuss the value she provides instead of settling for an economy class service. I really think a lot of that has to do with being able to put on both the hats of being practical and hands-on, but also the really strong technical theoretical side. Because when you're thinking about engaging someone for this type of role, you know, typically you're going to have some sort of, either it's an acquisition or an IPO, most generally that would kind of trigger needing to work with a cross-border expert. And you would typically either try to do that in-house with the staff that you have, or you're probably going to look to a big four, big 10, just because that's what you know. And you know that they're going to just like come in and get it done. Right. But with the big four, a lot of them are big four for life. So they haven't spent any time in industry. And so you probably will run into this, especially if you're going through an IPO because you have to deal with like their national office. And these people, I mean, they can quote accounting standards to the T, paragraph number XYZ. I mean, super, super smart. But if you haven't spent the time in industry and haven't like rolled up your sleeves to like have to put a cash flow together yourself or like write uh, memos about a specific transaction, like from the perspective of the company and putting together the journal entries, et cetera, you're still going to be kind of theoretical to some extent. And so it's hard to be able to like sit hand in hand with a company and like walk them through that process. And on the flip side, somebody who's been in house probably doesn't necessarily have as strong of like a technical expertise and or if you haven't done a lot internationally you probably don't have that international experience and even just some of like the cultural stuff we've been talking about so I think it's just being able to like blend those together and work as seamlessly as possible even in the background I mean I do a lot of stuff not only remotely obviously but also more on an async basis so I tend to rely more on like notion pages and teams chats and things where people can pick things up in their own time zone. It's just something that I've adapted to having to work across different cultures and different time zones. So I can really just like slide into the back of your company and kind of let you focus on the day to day and still allow you to be able to make sure that you can complete a transaction on time without the crazy onerous big four costs, without the kind of back and forth antagonistic relationship that you sometimes get with them and still have the right expertise. And then also, I mean, the advantage is that your staff start to pick up that knowledge as well. Like it's also a training exercise then, so then they can take it forward and, and run with it. As you've heard, Katrina has the skills and experience it would take to become a CFO herself. 
while she's had opportunities to become one. Listen next to Katrina talk about why that isn't the most appealing option. I see the appeal, get like gaining experience in that skill set and becoming a little bit more well-rounded, but it's always, I mean, I think a lot of people go through this with their career. Like, where do you really decide to like dig into one specific area versus still kind of maintaining that well-rounded aspects of your skills? I mean, I even had a conversation today with uh, someone, an in-house recruiter that I had talked to a couple of years ago when I was looking for a job and she kind of kept me in mind, was asking if I wanted to help take a German company public in Toronto, but it was meant to be more of like a full-time CFO thing. And I kind of, I mean, I was very honest about it. Like, listen, I don't know that I necessarily want to do like the strategy FP&A piece, but I think if you're trying to onboard a new CFO at the same time, you're trying to go public, that person's going to get overwhelmed trying to do the day-to-day. So let me come in still as like an interim contractor role and I can be like the real specialist kind of holding the hands of getting through the IPO. So I still see that, like I'm taking those, if I see a CFO opportunity, I'm probably still going to try to have a conversation about it. I don't want to like exploit the situation. But again, it comes back to like the education of like what's really possible with the resources that you have and where you need to like talk about bringing in experts. While Katrina has found roots for herself abroad, her career lends itself to opportunities to visit home. Listen to her next discuss the newfound appreciation she has for her childhood, as well as some parting wisdom that we could all use. The way that I think about my family is almost the same way I think about like Rhode Island in general, if you just give me a minute to explain that. When I was growing up in Rhode Island, the first thought I had was, I got to get out of here. And that's why I even to New York freshman year to go to a different state. I absolutely did not want to live there. But now that I don't live there and I go back to visit, it makes me appreciate it a lot more. It's a very beautiful place. It's got some great towns by the water. And it's just, it makes me look forward to it because it's almost like a special experience from that perspective. It's like going on vacation. And not to say that I only see or only talk to my family when I physically go go back there. But it's kind of a it's a similar concept. I mean I think that they appreciate and understand kind of like this is Katrina. She's over here doing her own thing and that makes me a little bit unique. And yeah, I think they have still some difficulty with it. And of course would prefer for me to like be closer. But in a lot of ways it's helped their relationship just because they've helped me be able to grow and explore as a person. Now that you know my parents are divorced, I got divorced when I was in college. But now that I'm more even just like friends with them and have experienced them as like us both being adults and also adds another level to that experience. And now my brother, he's a year and a half younger than me. He kind of did the digital nomad things. He was remotely and he was just like driving around the country and ended up in Texas. So we're starting to spread out a little bit. I mean, I am I am the oldest sibling. I have two stepsisters as well that are younger. So I'm sure they'll kind of all start to spread out and then it'll be a little bit more the norm, you know, with grown adult children that start to have their own kids and things like that. But because I was the first one to do it, I think that made it a little bit more difficult. I would say, I guess, just be patient. I mean, when you're a teenager, everything feels like it's so urgent and stressful and that it's something, if one specific thing doesn't happen the way you want it to, that it seems like the end of the world, you get more and more experience and kind of more resilient realize that you're, or at least I am, like adaptable when things happen. I can pivot as I need to. It just makes you realize that you can face whatever's coming at you. Special thanks to Katrina Nachi for being on the show. You can find her on LinkedIn if you'd like to say thanks yourself. Know anyone who would be great for the show? 
send an email to our senior show producer, ben.hillman at paddle.com. Also, please leave a five-star review if you enjoyed the podcast. We'll see you next time on Beyond the Budget, a podcast from Paddle Studios dedicated to helping you build better SaaS.